0: Exit for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I need a hero. I'm holding up for a hero till the end of the night. He's gotta be strong and he's gotta be fast and he's gotta be fresh on the fight.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the uncanny X Men comic book franchise, starting with giant size X Men number one, and make our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. I'm your host, Nico. And I'm your host, Jonah. And today, we have a very special episode. For once, it would seem, since the inception of this show, we actually have a run of uncanny X Men issues in a row, no diverging for other titles, no appearances, nothing. And the classics match issue for issue. No shenanigans, no skipped issues because of a fill-in, nothing wacky like that. We just have straightforward, uncanny X-Men by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, as well as classic X-Men by Chris Claremont and John Bolton. Jonah, it feels like we've covered everything but the Uncanny X-Men for so long. In fact, even last episode, our big return to form, we got to cover two issues of Uncanny X-Men. How was it? We got to read a chunk. How did it feel? Whole chunk of X-Men.
0: It was great. I was so excited to get back to our roots and to really delve into the stories of the team that we even start. We started this podcast about. So I'm really excited. I'm really happy. These were some really great issues to cover, and I'm really ready to dissect them and talk about them.
1: I completely agree. I think it is so much fun that we got to read these issues. But one of the things that I think is so crazy about these issues, we're talking about how we're back with the team we love. The first thing we cover? Someone we've never had in our title before. But... I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm getting too excited, we have so many things to talk about. Before we get to any of that, of course we have to cover what we're covering. Today we're going to be taking a look at Uncanny X-Men number 111 through 116, as well as the Matching Classics number 17 through 22. So Jonah, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this?
0: Absolutely. In Uncanny X-Men 111, Beast investigates his former teammates when he comes up a circus full of Doppel X-Men? It's the work of Mesmero, who has them completely under his thrall. Logan breaks free, slaps Jean, who in turn frees everyone. Beast and Mesmero's face-off is interrupted by Magneto. Uncanny X-Men 112-113. to Magneto defeats the X-Men, leaving them in the care of Nanny, a robot who keeps the X-Men's motor skills regressed to that of infancy. Turns out, Storm was like an Olympic-level gymnast or something as an infant, and that's free the resulting battle sends phoenix and beast one way believing the others are dead cyclops storm nightcrawler banshee colossus and wolverine wind up in the savage land in classic 17 we discover how the x-men were captured by mesmero in classic 18 it's more Jean struggles to control her powers classic 19 sees magneto's time as a nazi hunter classic 20 is storm versus corporate zombies classic 21 is colossus's first threesome and classic 22 is inexplicable but it involves storm and a gigantic space cat Alright, well then let's jump into it. Uncanny
1: 111. This issue has been a long time coming and in a lot of ways generated quite a bit of work for us. Realizing that Beast was going to be appearing for the first time, I wanted to make sure that Jonah had a little bit of background on Hank McCoy. As well as give Kyle an opportunity to interact with Beast before he starts following him in Defenders and then later X-Factor. The Amazing Adventure stories were not great. They didn't do much for anybody. And then running into Beast in Marvel Team-Up 69 and 70 was a lot of fun. Of course, it didn't go much of anywhere at the time. It did lead us here, however. I want to make one note. Hank makes a comment about the disappearing Avengers in numbers 170 to 172. I quickly read 170 to 172 just to see if there was any correlation. No, no, no. It, it, it has nothing to do with anything. No. We get to start on The Beast, and it's awesome. I really appreciate it. The Beast is such a fun character, and I think it's so silly whenever Hank McCoy is in public wearing a disguise that literally covers nothing.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's pretty interesting to see what the level of disguise Hank will wear, but no one says anything. It's almost, I think it's called the Superman effect, where even if Clark Kent walked around in without his glasses which is his disguise people still wouldn't recognize him because they don't want to so it's possible just the people just don't want to recognize beast which i get and speaking of not wanting to recognize things that are right in front of your face my first problem with this
1: issue which i love i actually don't have many problems with this issue but my first problem with this issue is in fact that beast sort of seems to be in great denial that these are the x-men he is going out of his way to be like maybe that's not really nightcrawler Maybe there's two of them. I don't know. From the beginning of the issue, as soon as you start with the cover, there's something amazing about this cover. Now, at one point when I was showing this issue to Kevo, who covered Arcade in the Marvel team-up issues, issues 65 and 66, he thought that that might be Arcade on the cover of that issue. No, it's actually Banshee. And it's a really hard-to-recognize Banshee. In fact, placing Banshee there and making him look so... Kind of creepy sinister, thanks Cockrum. Uh, Dave Cockrum returned to do a cover. It, it's really interesting because it's actually Mesmero, who, by the way, when he finally shows up, is the gayest bad guy. He's got his leg up on a table, kind of like Michelle pfeiffer it for Beast. I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, Jonah, talk to me about this issue. How did you feel seeing the X-Men get turned into circus performers for the
0: first of many times? It was actually pretty interesting. I can possibly very very like one percent of me can buy hank being suspicious because we did have in i believe it was 98 where the x-men fight robots of themselves so it is possible that these could be robots but we know they're not his suspicion is a little too far strong for not seeing them i kind of get it they kind of try to explain it which is okay i really did enjoy seeing the (laughs) I, I can't even describe it, just how they act with one another and how Jean is like this 1940s like black and white investigator, kind of like legs up to here kind of woman, like Tootsie, and then Scott kind of acts as her boyfriend, but not really. Yeah, she's this like noir dame and
1: Scott's her enforcer boyfriend and you just expect them to be like, we're on our way to Coney Island from Canarsie and we're, we're on our way to pick up because it's, it's Scotty's night to collect. This is just like the most over-the-top ridiculous play out of this situation. I do think this is one of those examples where John Byrne had to be the person to draw this. There is no one who could have taken this and made it the home run it is other than John Byrne. He has top to bottom, amazing form, amazing fun. He also manages to make Wolverine's chest hair so animalistic. That's a really specific thing to comment on, but you may have heard... By now, we're gay. And gay men, some of us, super dig chest hair. And Wolverine is a really manly man. Even at his most buff and powerful, Colossus is still a pretty boy. Wolverine is an animal. And they do not shy away from that. I like how the... Story plays out. I think it's really fun, and I really do enjoy that Wolverine is the one who's able to snap out of it. Wolverine's like, nah, they've been trying to mess with my mind my whole life. I won't let them stop me. I won't let them get me. I do think, however, that he slaps Jean needs to be discussed.
0: Yeah, that should not have been your way of... Having the chain reaction of the X Men being freed from Mesmero's control, who well, at this point we still don't know who is involved. We just know that the X Men are under control of somebody because we do learn these are the actual X Men. But I do I agree. I th- it it will make so much sense once we cover and we talk about the classic a little bit for the matching classic. But it, Wolverine is actually not under mind control. He's just kind of defeated, which. I appreciate him being the one to break free when Beast reveals his identity and the Carnies try to attack him. It's great to see him full of life and vigor to try to fight for his friends again, but I just have a slight issue as to why he would allow himself to just be tied up in the first place and not try to escape, but that's me being slightly nitpicky.
1: So there was just a long pause and then a delete and a cutback and some talking back and forth, and this is a phenomenal conversation. Jonah brought up the classic story that's associated with this issue, and now's as good as time as any to talk about it. The story tells how Mesmero takes control of the X-Men and the way he fights them and then ultimately decides, oh, we're going to be a circus act together. I actually think it's one of the more fun backup stories. I enjoy it a lot. I also enjoy the classic pages in this issue, add a bunch to Beast and help contextualize Beast for new X-Men readers. But here, the more interesting thing for me is this backup story. I thought it kind of helped explain how the X-Men could have been captured. But Jonah brought up something really interesting that's established by the backup story.
0: So Wolverine has one of, I think, the greatest powers to have in the X-Men universe. A Wolverine, because of his animalistic nature, is unaffected by psychic and telepaths. He can't be mind-controlled because his brain automatically resets to that very aggressive, animalistic style that completely shuts down anyone from being able to mind-control him. In the classic issue, Mesmero is unable to use his powers on Wolverine. He's able to successfully mind-control everyone else on the team, but Wolverine, and Wolverine is just kind of defeated because he cannot handle every single X-Men at once. However, the comic makes it look like that Wolverine is under mind-control, which is... A weird retcon to add in the classic that kind of counteracts what's going on in the actual issue.
1: I agree, especially because one of the most major things we're going to discuss later on is in the unforgettable Uncanny 15 opening sequence Wolverine is in fact hypnotized and mind-controlled by Sauron into fighting the other X-Men. So Sauron, Sauron, I don't know. Ultimately, it's about the X-Men trying to get the One Ring or
0: something. Also in the classic, there are two things I do want to make a note of. One being the way Mesmero is able to uh, mesmerize the entire team is he gets Jean first. And he gets her while she's in, I think, Grand Central Station and her mind's wandering. And this is really good. Because this is an issue that Jean has that they talk about a lot is when she's in open spaces with a lot of people. Her power tends to spread all over the place and she's left vulnerable. So great. That I can buy. However, before Mesmero gets the rest of the X-Men team, he has a little harem in an apartment somewhere. And he has Jean in this like negligee and she's all sexy. And he's like, oh, I'm going to have sex with Jean. And the Phoenix is like, no, no, Bob, no. And he's like, but... But, but, but Jean, I, I I want her. She's so pretty. She does whatever I say. But the phoenix protects Jean from doing anything that harms her in that way. And I like that, but it's a weird device to add that it doesn't protect her from other things. It's a weird cherry picking mechanic you added to her.
1: It does seem like they want to be able to play this weird game. Both sides of the equation. Oh, she's in terrible danger. She's facing the worst thing a woman can face, but we're not going to go there because she's the Phoenix and she's sacred, and we don't do that to Jean. It does kind of feel like they're trying to have their cake and not eat it too.
0: And just the last thing on it I need a better reference for how powerful Jean is as the Phoenix or how powerful she's going to become. To me, you can't have her win a fight against the Herald of Galactus Fire Lord but then lose to someone, a lower level villain like Mesmero, you have to, if someone's going to be really powerful, they have to be powerful. You can't have them lose what seems like a very easy fight.
1: Well, I really like that you said like 18 things right there, because these classic stories do make things so complicated. Like we said with the Wolverine thing a second ago, if Wolverine is immune to mind control, he's about to get mind controlled and didn't seem to be that immune to it. Gene's varying and fluctuating power level ...is so fascinating, and Classic fucks with it so much. They include an additional page of Jean versus Magneto in the classics for this arc... ...so that she doesn't just burn out right away like she does in the original version... Also, since we're talking about it already, let's just jump to the next classic since it doesn't actually tie into the next issue. The next classic seems to be Jean scared at her growing power level. One of the things the X-Men becomes obsessed with is showing us that any one member of the X-Men could take the whole team down. This becomes like their favorite pastime, but specifically Jean. Jean's fluctuating power level is in part because they were trying to tell a story at the time in a linear narrative every chance they could get away with it. Here, they're just kind of throwing it all at you. I actually have nothing to say about this next classic. It's just another Gene is losing control story.
0: I agree. I don't think, as, as I talked about it before on the podcast in different episodes, you don't need to spoon feed your readers everything. I don't really think this uh, classic was needed. I think the only thing this classic really adds is it kind of beats home that the theme of the X-Men are a family. Gene goes off to go brood by herself and is upset by her powers, but the X-Men kind of tell her, No, you're fine. You're with us. You have a family. We're here to protect you and to help you with this. I think that's nice, but whatever. Moving on.
1: Moving on. Since we're doing it, let's just go for it. I'm sorry. We're just going to do it. We're going to get the next one. The Magneto classic stresses me out. Oh my God. Look, I love Magneto as the tortured good guy, bad guy. I love Magneto as the tortured good guy, bad guy. He is the most compelling when he is faced and racked with conflict as a man and a hero and a villain, and an ideological concept. And that's what makes Magneto such a powerful anthema to Xavier. But, and look, okay, rewind. I love the narrative they gave him with his Holocaust backstory. The Holocaust is such a horrifying element of human history. And if Chris Claremont, a man who is Jewish, wants to tell that story, he has every right. And I love the way he chose to tell it with Magneto. And I get that this is how much of that story came out. But... Here, it feels kind of forced onto a character it doesn't jibe with. Magneto in Uncanny X-Men at this point is a psychopathic murderer. He is not some nuanced man facing ethical dilemmas. Did this classic X-Men story, Jonah, feel to you like it was a fluid thought with the villain of this arc?
0: No, I have a couple of problems with this issue. I love Magneto being a foil to Xavier. I love that play on... This is what Charles could have been, and this is what if Magneto could have been. I really like that showing that where an experience someone has will affect them and how such traumatic events will change their course of their destiny. But this issue to me feels like a forced sympathy um plea for Magneto when it's not necessary yet, as Nico said, we don't know enough about Magneto. To have him have this sympathy factor yet. He's, as Nico said, just a murderous villain. He's a psychopath. He's a terrorist. He's all these different things that you don't need to give a sad backstory to yet. And part of the thing that
1: complicates it is, again, because Jonah is reading the uncanny version, as many people would if they purchased the omnibus edition or if they read it online now, they would read the version that does not have the additional page where Magneto is thinking to himself about his time in a death camp. This material is powerful. These elements are incredible, and they help shape this character into one of the most dynamic characters to ever be in this franchise. But here it feels so shoehorned in. Okay, I think we just said we had a lot of problems with a lot of classics. You're good on those classics, right? Alright, so from the classics to a classic issue. The issue ends with a pretty unforgettable twist after logan wakes up gene gene wakes up the rest of the x-men beast is continuing to kind of one-on-one with their psychic bad guy went out of nowhere no it can't be it's magneto magneto's here and he's going to finally get what he deserves with the x-men more than a one issue appearance and then disappearing however before we can talk at all about Uncanny 112. I need to make a point about Magneto's last appearance. I cannot believe that in my editing the episode, I ultimately cut the only reference that made it into the conversation about the events of issue 104. In issue 104, Magneto, toward the end of the issue, knocks into a containment cell, and it says, Mutant X. Uh, destabilized, uh, seal broken, oxygen, blah, blah, blah. This will come back up. This is an important piece of this bigger puzzle that Claremont is weaving. And I felt very foolish that it didn't make it into the last episode where we got to talk about Magneto. So I wanted to say it here and say, yes, it's not just the threads that are going to be picked up now that start running further. Claremont is in a long, long game that he doesn't even know how long it's going to be yet. So he's just throwing down seeds everywhere and hoping something sprouts up. So, Jonah, the last time you got to read Magneto, it was one issue. It was in and out, and I know we've talked about him on the Champions, elsewhere, and the appearance there is kind of annoying for my sake. But, Jonah, tell me, Magneto, bad guy, two issues, well, like 2.1
0: issues. How was it? How'd you feel? Scary as bad guy, huh? Right? Yeah, Magneto is really scary, especially when we do talk about 112, 113, how powerful he actually becomes. But I really wasn't expecting this twist when I was reading this for the first time. It caught me so off guard and I was so genuinely surprised. And I was so genuinely scared for the X-Men as to what was going to happen to them. I think storytelling-wise, it's great to have Magneto here. I think it's such a great amount of time between us seeing him in... 104, I believe it is. To now, it's a really good not something that was just left off and oh, here we're going back to it like 50 issues later. No, it's a, I think it's a really good amount of time to have in between them and to have enough time for Magneto to craft a plan to take down the X-Men. I loved it. And one of the
1: first things they do is they sort of establish what's going to be Claremont's MO with the X-Men going forward. There's this sort of weird mutant art of war that begins to define the way the X-Men interact with their bad guys. They are very comfortable standing, looking at their enemy and having a conversation about their ethical differences in war. Like, seriously, they just sort of talk and with Magneto for a minute. And Wolverine's like, Bob, I'm going to slice you to pieces. And Cyclops is like, no, man, we're still in the talking phase. And Magneto's like, we are. So don't get ahead of yourself. It's a really weird dynamic. But then Magneto kind of ups the crazy and is like this other bad guy just gonna throw him out of our giant floating circus wagon our giant floating circus wagon that's one of those things that just it's not something you see in comics as much now and i doing that thing where i can't stop getting out of order here and i'm not trying to be that guy but it's really important that when magneto's like green villain to death storm's like no don't do it you're gross he's a bad guy but don't do it right and this is important because she feels the same way about garak at the end of the arc she's like no i don't care that he's a bad guy he doesn't deserve to die and so that is a thing for storm the sanctity of life for storm is really important i can't do it i can't fucking do it okay i guess we're talking about the other three classics really quick because i'm trying to not but if what we're talking about is the sanctity of life and storm i need to be able to talk about this classic jonah classic 20 I can't even... You read it before me. So one of the things, again, for those people who don't remember or who maybe are tuning in for the first time, I grew up reading Uncanny Exon My father handed me a nearly complete run. And the classics are just about the only new thing I'm covering because I read the original form. I never knew about the classic stories. Jonah, in his research, tend to get to his reading a little bit before I do and tend to give me warnings about these classic stories. He tried warning me about this one. Jonah, tell me about the time Storm goes up against... I, just corporate zombies what else
0: i would like to re uh retitle classic x-men number 20 as another excuse to draw storm in a bathing suit this issue literally has no purpose no nothing new added to storm's character i really feel this was just an excuse to draw storm in a bathing suit because storm they put storm in this situation where i can say confidently storm was never in any danger because she ends everything in one lightning bolt as she usually does i actually found the story a little bit confusing the jumping back and forth with the dream sequence and
1: then not the dream or like it's out of order i just thought the whole thing was a little bit crazy again i love these sort of human interests the x-men care about real people the x-men interact with real people stories but this one kind of pushed my buttons okay so i keep trying to describe colossus as uh the muscle-bound wet blanket of the x-men And I keep making all of these analogies about how he's steel hard and he looks like a ribbed condom and everything about him is meant to be super masculine, but he's this big mopey piece of crap. I can't believe it. Somehow Claremont got permission to write Baby's First Threesome. This is like, I feel like we are constantly
0: covering implied threesomes on this show. What is happening? I have no idea. I get it. Colossus is fucking hot as nico described colossus always just looks like the the guy in high school who got who got puberty a little too early so he's just literally just muscled out swimmer like it looks great and i get it but like of all the care of all the hot characters you have and at this point in x-men everyone just looks really hot especially in the savage land where they're all just shirtless it's great you gave you want colossus to have a threesome but he's like the most emotionally stunted out of everyone And in this issue, he's, like, still sulking over Anya. And I'm like, Colossus, you have to get over her. You have to move on. This is creepy now. Move on and let her go. It's his sister. It's his kid sister. He literally is having trouble
1: forming adult relationships because of his kid sister. And part of it that plays into this is that Colossus is just being emotional and drawing them. And they're like, you know, put your baby in me, Colossus. And then he fights dinosaurs and they're like, no, no, double put your baby in me, Colossus. And Colossus is like, I mean, oh, no, I have to transform into metal. Don't be scared of me. And they're like, yo, I bet that dick doesn't quit. And he's like. I'm happy, literally, like, one of the lines is like, and for the first time ever, Colossus feels happy. Love. No, the thing he's in love with is getting his metal dick sucked by two chicks at once. Look, I'm Polly. I have not made that a secret on this show. But I absolutely think that some of these themes of, like, white male victory, like, like, homecoming king crowned with boobies everywhere... This is just not my favorite classic. And then we get to the classic, I just, guys, Space Cat. Um, We're going to deal with a lot of really amazing stuff with the X-Men in space. We're going to deal with a lot of weird stuff with the X-Men in space. Storm is going to be able to summon space winds. Just get used to it. This kind of maybe took the cake. Jonah, you tried to warn me. You told me it literally didn't make any sense. Take it away,
0: man. This story, I... I... I don't know how to convey to you the weirdness and the peculiarness that this story was able to ever leave and ever be printed and drawn. Storm goes through a magic portal at some point. It also doesn't explain anything when this is. Nothing. Well, they do say that it takes place after
1: the events of this issue. She just thinks back, could she have done the thing, uh, could she have saved Garak, the thing I earlier mentioned that she thinks is important to do in response to even though he's a villain, she has to save him. She questions if she had tried harder, could she have? So the only context we have is that it's after the events of this arc, still in the Savage Land. At what point in that narrative? Because, spoiler alert, the X-Men are going to go to the Savage Land of this episode. And then, spoiler alert, the X-Men are going to go back to the Savage Land. And, spoiler alert, it is always problematic. So,
0: yeah, that's that's it. it. After this. But, like, she's transported away with no explanation. And then she saves someone from, like, this fish-looking creature. And then someone turns out to be, like, a captain of a ship that's also a talking space magical cat. And then Storm is just there for months. <laughs> She's just casually fighting a war with this woman for months. And it's kind of like, what? I think <laughs> I think it's a weird message to try to help Storm get over her parental issues of losing her parents earlier. Because she talks about kind of viewing this woman as her mother. Mirren. She views Mirren as her mother, but like, I don't know. It's this, it's such weird pages. I don't like this. Now, I actually want to say there's one really interesting
1: thing because I'm, I I don't have some, I don't have a a response for this story, man. I just don't. But what I do have a response to is that classic X-Men number 22 featured a Wolverine pinup by Frank Miller. That's pretty significant. You can ultimately count the total number of pages that Frank Miller did for Marvel outside of his work on Daredevil, Elektra, and Wolverine's titles altogether. So a pinup like this is pretty cool to find. Okay, I think we've exhausted Classic for now. Do you think we've exhausted Classic? Do you have more for me on Classic?
0: The last thing I just want to say is about Classic 22. Storm did not need another Classic issue about her so soon after she just got one in 20. That's that's it. The favoritism
1: is beginning to get a little out of control to the point where I'm actually really happy to say we've made so many jokes at the expense of Banshee and Sean not having dialogue and Sean not having characterization and Sean not having a personality. Well, this arc really turned that around. In fact, Sean is the barker in the center of the cover of the first issue we covered. And then Sean appears... In a loincloth so frequently, I kept thinking he was Khazar. I kept thinking that can't possibly be Banshee, but goddamn, goddamn, Banshee, goddamn. Uh, I would rather have the Banshee gets a threesome story than Colossus at this point. Cause Banshee and Banshee gets these crazy emotional moments. we'll get to it. We'll get to it. I'm just so excited that Banshee finally has a personality. Okay. I think we're good with the classics for this episode. Jonah, you feel good with the classics?
0: Yes, I do. I think we can get back to this main narrative and not have to talk about bad issues and talk about some really great issues.
1: I do want to make one more note that we will be discontinuing the classics during the Dark Phoenix saga. The Dark Dark Phoenix Saga will be the last time we read any of the X-Men classics for the foreseeable future. We're going to pick up the backup stories where they fall in publication. Otherwise, we're going to run into a number of characters and spoiler incidents. While this series is not spoiler-free, we are working to keep the narrative in one piece. It's been a lot of fun looking at these classic stories, and I've really enjoyed taking a stroll through stories and avenues of the narrative I've never experienced. But... At this point, my getting to experience something new here is going to cost Jonah getting to experience quality. And that's no longer the case. So, Magneto throws Mesmero out into space, and Storm is like, well, that's pretty messed up. I think what's messed up is they've been flying in a giant wooden wagon this whole time, and then they get to the ice base.
0: Yeah, they... Magneto had plenty of time to construct an entire base inside of a volcano. Right? That's pretty crazy. It's pretty genius to transport the X-Men to... A secluded location where you have the inherent advantage. And he one by one fights all of them. The person who puts up the most interesting fight is Jean.
1: Magneto is overwhelmed at Jean, and this is where Claremont chose to expand a fight and show Jean not burn out on power quite as quickly. Here, she's exhausted after about a page's worth of panels. However, the classic edition does give her another page of fighting. Wolverine puts up his best and then goes down... Ultimately, all of the X-Men are felled. Magneto is triumphant. This is the kind of thing we've been waiting for. Magneto was dealt with in one issue, but we were so scared. Cyclops kept saying, oh no. Here, when Cyclops says, oh god, not yet, we're not ready, they prove why it's so scary that Magneto is here. Magneto is here, and even Phoenix can't do anything about it.
0: I want to make a special note of something that Scott says in this issue we talked about in previous episodes, we're kind of confused as to why the X-Men aren't fighting as a team. And Scott actually points it out that they're losing and they don't stand a chance because they're not fighting as a team. And I think that's a really great thought and observation for Scott to have since he is the team's leader. And they are able to win by fighting as a team when they do fight Magneto for a second time in the next
1: issue. 100%. This is a humongous turning point. I don't think we're ever going to complain about them not fighting as a team in this incarnation again. Sure, there's going to be Points in the X-Men's trajectory where changes in the team roster will result in changes in the dynamic, especially when it comes to changing leadership. But here, the X-Men have united as a team. After Magneto dispatches them one by one, we get some really weird stuff. Magneto has a robot, Nanny, and Nanny is keeping the X-Men's motor skills suspended to their infancy, which is an interesting thing since Magneto himself had been reduced to an infant. We get this incredible sequence where Storm keeps reflecting on her time as a thief in Cairo. It's a really interesting scene because we see her work to get the lockpick out of her hair and free herself. She fails... And Nanny thwarts her attempt, and it kind of breaks her, and everybody sees how sad she is, and they're all struggling too. And the next thing we see is Magneto come back in, and Magneto's like, Oh man, what's going on, you guys? Something seems kind of off. Oh man. Oh, I'm gonna play along just in case there is a plan to escape, and they're able to defeat him with that plan to escape. We don't see them formulate it. We just see that now they're working together, and they're able to take Magneto down. Between all of them, they're able to take Magneto down. It takes Phoenix with an explosion and Cyclops wailing on him. Colossus punches him in the head so hard, he says it's going to take him time to recover. That's nuts! However, none of that compares to the point at which Beast begins wildly swinging Nightcrawler by the tail. And Nightcrawler's like,
0: there's got to be a better way. Yeah, it's like a fastball special-esque move, but it's just such a good line to have kurt say and to have hank do this motion i think it was historical and i think it's great
1: and after the last time where they got their asses whooped by magneto this time they were able to hold their ground
0: yeah it's really exciting to be able to see the good guys win in a way that you want them to you we want to see the x-men as a team because that's what they are they're a team and they fight in such a great style and it's so exciting to watch it one-on-one how the X-Men use their powers and their wits and their knowledge of Magneto in battle and how they're able to formulate a fighting plan to win.
1: One of the things I love the most about this issue is the surprise ending. The X-Men are able to escape, the base goes kablooey, and the craziest thing happens. Gene and Beast wind up stranded in one location, unaware of where the other X-Men are, leading them to believe the X-Men are all dead. This leads them to link up with Charles and Lalandra, who'd had an appearance earlier in this issue. And Jean and Beast, along with Charles and Lalandra, have their own separate storyline mourning the loss of the other X-Men. As I mentioned, this is fleshed out a little bit more in the classic story with extra pages and extra sequences. This does kind of support the reinforced relationship between Xavier and Jean that Claremont created in those early classic flashbacks. So, the cover says... The day the X-Men died, and it shows just Beast, Gene, and Xavier on the cover of the next issue. Jonah, going into this, did that surprise you? Did you know what was going on, or,
0: you know, where were you in this journey? It surprised me a little bit to see that that's the cover. It's a really depressing cover to look at. And I wasn't shocked that the X-Men were still alive, because I know that they're going to still be alive. That's as a fan. But thinking about it, of when this was released... If that was just the cover, and this is before, like, someone can spoil or give a synopsis for an issue, I don't know what fans would be thinking. Like, oh my god, they just killed off the X-Men, it's just gonna be the two of them now, they need to form a new team again. And why not? They actually just got rid of a whole bunch of X-Men... Havoc's
1: gone, Polaris is gone, Iceman's gone, Angel is gone, Beast was gone. And true, they're still running around the Marvel Universe, but they were eaten by Krakoa at one point and then came back. There's nothing to stop the audience from thinking from this cover that those X-Men, who look like shadows in the background, could really be gone. However, four or five pages in and you can tell, the X-Men have taken up residence in the Savage Land. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the Savage Land is a section of the Marvel Universe's Earth cover continent where flora and fauna from many ages ago survive. It is overrun with dinosaurs and sort of monsters, and there's a lot of problematic themes that run through the area. It gets a little xenophobic, so we try to keep the conversation as aware of the problems as we can. As soon as the X-Men get to the Savage Land, they're attacked by some sort of horrifying pterodactyl monster, but not before this really cool moment between Banshee and Storm. Out of nowhere, Banshee is this really caring, smart character, and he's like, oh, Storm probably needs to blow off some steam and fly a little bit. Let's get up in the sky real quick. He's like super aware of his teammates, he's being really caring. I enjoy Banshee. I really like the character, and I'm glad to see that he's starting to go somewhere because I wonder how much of my Love of Banshee is directly this era of Banshee, and I'm projecting it, or if it's elements of Banshee's personality I know that come from later runs. Jonah, Wolverine jumping up in the sky, stabbing a big old bird.
0: How was that? It's exciting, it's adrenaline filled. It's so cool to see a Wolverine do this. And it's really, really important that Wolverine is the one to do this and take a little bit of charge when they're entering here. While Scott is the leader, it's really a good note to understand the survival instincts that Wolverine has and how he's able to tell the team this is how you are going to survive you have to kill it's almost hunt or be hunted and wolverine standing up is a really well you may think he's a dick and very cocky it's really important that he does say this because the x-men need to realize the situation they're in right now and the situation they are in is complicated
1: these are not the run of the mill mutants they are used to fighting the x-men are really good at yelling at things they're not good at fighting monsters for the most part considering when we began this project one of the first issues we read was night of the demon and that was pretty jarring we've come a long way that you're like nope we're in the savage land it's fine okay dinosaurs it's fine who cares we actually get a really lovely tender moment between storm and scott scott admiring himself as a furry pirate sure and he's like hey you know what i kind of look like corsair i wonder And Storm is like, yeah, man, I mean, sure. And he's like, I mourned, Hank. I'm not mourning Jean. I wonder what that's about. Maybe she's just not the girl I remembered. And Storm is like, well, maybe she's not a girl anymore. And maybe from the giant man pecs covered in hair, you're not a boy anymore either. One of the things that's really difficult for Chris Claremont to do is transition Scott permanently into adulthood. He's going to bounce around with a lot of, I was the golden boy. But back to this moment. Shortly after, Storm is just doing that, storm thing being naked laying around when she's attacked by a man who had been watching them mysteriously from the grass earlier turns out it's the x-men's good old buddy sauron carlycos is a creature who can absorb mutant energy to transform into a giant green pterodactyl it's a lot it's a lot a lot to accept and it's even more to just get used to so jonah giant giant green pterodactyl x-men's enemy Sauron
0: yeah no uh I have to make a note that Storm has to be the one initially attacked and knocked out because I feel if it was someone else and not Storm the fight against Sauron would have been gone much faster it's also good to note uh we see where classic 21 picks up Colossus says instead of going to the lake with Storm to go swimming with everyone he's going on this double date even though he's supposed supposedly sad whatever um But we're fighting a weird villain, and now we're going to talk about his powers of control and hypnosis a little bit. He hypnotizes Wolverine into fighting the X-Men. I do want to make a little note of the art. Wolverine envisions uh, Scott, Kurt, and Banshee as demon-looking things. Kurt doesn't look that much different, but Scott kind of looks a little bit like a basilisk, and Banshee looks like an actual Banshee, which I think is a really cool art direction for the take. But as we talked about earlier in the episode, especially with the classic talking about Wolverine being immune to psychics, how is this possible if Wolverine's animalistic brain is able to overcome any form of mind control or hypnosis? Why is this the exception? It's one of those things where Claremont was trying to use classic
1: to make implicit elements or later elements feel more concrete throughout it didn't always work and this is one of those examples i want to point out though this arc has some of the most famous imagery from x-men ever whether it's the wolverine versus sauron double splash or it's the sauron cover or it's sauron holding storm well wow, i guess it's not lot of- oh or the Climbing out of the Savage Land on the icy mountain image that opens up the next issue, or it's the Golden City of the Sun God. The imagery in this arc is some of the most famous imagery in X-Men ever. Jonah really does have a point. Unless you take Storm out of this fight, it's really hard to have them fight somebody who flies, whether she would knock them out with a wind current or whatnot. I would accept that much more readily than how this fight goes. Colossus makes a really weird judgment call. He thinks that if Sauron tries to absorb his mutant energy and he transforms, it'll be too much and sort of short Sauron out. I would just like to go on record as saying that's some big fucking gamble because you don't know how prehistoric velociraptor pterodactyl mutant absorbing monster powers work you're really lucky he didn't just turn into a giant metal bird although i guess a giant metal bird would have trouble flying i guess a plane is a giant metal bird planes fly jonah talk to me tell me
0: i don't think sauron would have the accessibility to get some gasoline to be able to fly so i'm pretty sure it still would have been fine but you're right it's also a little bit out of character for colossus to take this gamble and to act this cocky like i have too much energy oh hold on let me do the correct voice duh i have too much energy when i transform he can't absorb all of it i think that threesome went to his
1: head i think he was just like they said i was much to handle i bet i am much for giant green man so bird man bird chicken man giant green bird chicken man and that's where this Ark has gone. So they defeat Sauron and they're like, Wolverine's like, I'm going to cut him into chicken nuggets. And Kazar, as anyone who's familiar with the Savage Land will know, Kazar, protector of the Savage Land. Very much the sort of like modern Tarzan. Uh, his real name is Plunder. He's a famous character of the Marvel Universe. He's actually a Golden Age character. He's a somewhat problematic thing to discuss. He has a long-term... Love interest Shanna the She Devil and uh, his pet Zabu, who is in this arc, of course. Kazar says, "Please don't kill him. That's just not how we do things here." And we are treated to some hell of a backstory about a high priestess named Zaladane. Get used to her. I wonder if Zaladane is any relation to Polaris Lorna Dane. Oh man. Nope. Stay tuned. So they tell us all about how when Sauron tried to kill himself and it didn't work, he woke up and he kind of saw this, like, high priest thing going on. And Saladin is transforming this regular dude into the petrified man, Garok, And now he has all the powers of a giant Garok or something. This is really strange. And it's this weird, like, novella interlude. So then Kazara's like, I'll get you guys out of the Savage Land, NBD. And they head out into, like, the worst frost anyone has seen in some time. Jonah, before we embark on the last issue of this actually really great arc, do you have
0: anything for the previous two issues? I think the introduction of Garak as the villain for the next issue was a little clunky. It was a weird way to shove it in to talk about it. I think it's a interesting... A villain and having a high priestess you know that's a pretty good way you can go about having a villain come about is like a cult summoning something from another dimension that's fine i don't have a problem with that i wish the clarification was look better because while i was reading this i got really confused and i thought i was reading something else and having a better transition into what's going on in the savage land right now would have been a, a lot better for this issue
1: A lot does start to happen very on top of itself, almost like they couldn't wait to get the narrative out of here. I do think any one of these issues would have benefited from either being double-sized or perhaps just one more issue in the Savage Land. I feel disconnected from things going on with Jean and Xavier and Lalandra and Hank. And, you know, not for nothing, we only have Hank for so many special issues of Uncanny X-Men. He's really an Avengers character at this point before becoming a Defenders character. We only have Hank so much, and I swear, other than that one issue where he had all the Dialogue, he's been turned into another banshee. However, I have noticed that by pulling Gene and Beast, as well as Xavier and Alandra, out of the narrative, we've had time to get to know a number of these X-Men in detail. In fact, I think the X-Man who has suffered the most has been Kurt. Kurt used to get a ton of dialogue and a ton of narrative here. I really feel he only has one tremendous moment this entire issue, and we're going to get to that. But anyway, Uncanny 116... The X-Men are on their way out of the Savage Land. When they are attacked by Zaladane's rider, priest, monk, warrior men, they make off with everybody but Wolverine, Storm, and Nightcrawler, including Kazar. However, Zabu does manage to stay behind because Zabu is the za best.
0: <laughs>
1: I just shook my head in shame, and it was bad. Jonah, do you want to talk about that awesome Nightcrawler moment?
0: Yes, absolutely, and I can't wait to get to it. But there's something else I want to talk about first. So the X-Men that weren't captured were Storm, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler. The three characters we kind of feel, before these last few issues, were carrying the narrative. We actually have a really great moment of Wolverine, where Zabu's feeling aggressive because his master and best friend, I'm presuming, was captured. Wolverine is actually able to calm him down and talk to him. And he tells him what to do to go back and get help because the village in the savage land that the X-Men were staying at don't know that they're actually under attack and captured. And I really like that. And immediately, no, actually, I'm actually jumping ahead of myself a little bit. Storm and Nightcrawler comment on this and like, wow, Wolverine, there's actually more to you than just being aggressive. And right after they say that, Wolverine brutally kills someone. (laughs) and I actually think it's a great justification of characterization. I love that you brought that up.
1: The classic went out of its way to change the dialogue and make that moment where he has to kill someone a combat decision, not a careless decision. Just be like, die. They change it because exactly what you're talking about was maybe a little more nuanced than people were ready for. So from Logan murdering to an amazing Nightcrawler moment. There's this point in which, as they're trying to save their friends, they can, in the far-off distance, see where everyone's being held. And Storm and Wolverine realize their only chance of getting there would be if Nightcrawler can teleport them. Jonah, do you want to
0: take it? Yes. And this one line cements a part of why I love Kurt. Storm asks if he will be able to make that distance because it's the longest distance he's ever done before. And he says, yes, but in his mind, he's like, even if it puts the strain on me, he's willing to put his entire being at risk to strain himself and to push himself to save his team and his family.
1: Yeah, he's never tried that far, but he still gives them a cocky watch me so they don't worry for even one second that he can't take care of them. That's part of who Kurt is. We're going to see Kurt grow from this amazing younger brother on the X-Men who wants to prove that he loves his family to an amazing leader on Excalibur and other teams down the line. So, But that does bring us to kind of the the what-the-fuck moment of this episode in an episode full of what-the-fuck moments. They're trying to melt Colossus to find his metal boiling point or something. And Colossus is like, I don't feel pain, but who knows when I will.
0: Yeah, it's actually a really scary image to see Colossus all red and burning hot. And it kind of is like a good question of like, what's the extent of his power set? He's saying he doesn't feel pain, but at what temperature does he start to feel pain? It's, It's scary. It actually is pretty scary. The battle from here
1: goes pretty quickly the x-men jump in, save their captured teammates. Garok and Cyclops have an optic blast battle. After the optic blast battle, everything kind of falls apart and we get that moment where Storm is like, "Nope, we got to go back in and save Garok." And she's unable to. When she comes out, she's kind of flying off to herself and and Banshee wonders why she's off to herself. Wolverine tells him smartly, "Hey, something happened in there and it's not our business. Just give her a moment." After that, the X-Men head on out of the Savage Land into the worst storm. The path they've taken is seen in some number of years the X-Men just can't catch a break Jonah how did winding down the Savage Land arc go for you
0: I think it was pretty good I actually have to agree with something Nico said earlier is that I think this arc could have done well with either a double issue or adding another issue into this arc it feels a little rush and I feel like there was a little more that they could have given us to help smooth it out a little more instead of piling information all at once it kind of felt like well we don't know the exact time frame of how long they were staying in the Savage Land their stay felt very short it kind of felt over in an instant and i think i would have liked trying to see them adapt a little more of not knowing will we ever get home
1: we're gonna get a whole lot more will we ever get home stories as well as a whole lot more time in the savage land soon i just can't believe it we got to cover like six whole issues of the uncanny x-men and some of the classics weren't terrible no actually each one of them had like a massive continuity i can't well jonah I have so greatly enjoyed getting back to reading a chunk of what
0: is some of the best superhero comics ever. How was this arc for you? It was so refreshing. It was so nice to be back with our team, and I was just really excited to be able to read this and learn more about the Merry Mutants that we're falling in love with. I really enjoyed these issues, uh... And you know what? It's You can see where the X-Men is just starting to get better and better. We had less complaints about these issues than a lot of the other full episodes.
1: I agree. We had fewer complaints about this whole episode than we did about about individual issues of previous episodes and it might have helped that there wasn't a marvel team up to be seen so jonah until
0: our ex gene clicks back on where can everybody find you not in the savage land you can actually find me on twitter and instagram at jonah rubino and at, jo- at jonah dot respectively nico where can all your fans find you You can check out my awesome,
1: inclusive superhero comic, Riot Squad, over at KidRiotComics.com. Please feel free to check out my music at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo, where I make throwback R&B with my buddy Adam. Head on over to my other shows here on this network, like... MCU.HTML, where my husband Kevo and I dissect the Marvel Cinematic Universe, more or less. Don't forget Now and Again, where I talk about pop music with my best buddy Chris, hey, and the other episodes of X's for Podcast, featuring Kevo again on Captain Britain, or Kyle on the Champions. Sorry about the quality on the Champions comic. It's rough. Not to mention the whole slew of other shows you can check out here on the Cage Club Network. Don't forget to give a look over at the Patreon, because you could even help decide some of what the next stuff that gets covered is. Alright, time to get out of here. We finally escaped to Savage Land. We're out of Magneto's grasp. Okay, until next time guys, we'll see ya.
0: See ya then.